um, we just appreciate you guys. And uh, I was sharing with some people earlier that uh, what these guys did for me, especially Andre, the first time I heard his video, just a little clip on YouTube, and I said, they basically communicated where my heart wanted to go, but religion wouldn't let me go there. Does that make sense? And it was like, is he really that good? And, and our, your heart leaps and says yes, but at the same time, we've been taught, no, it's not that way, and you know, he's, there were, we were talking about this today, there's buts to God, right? God's love, but, or God's this, but. No, he's love and no buts. Nothing added to it, which is beautiful. So yeah, it's going to be an awesome night. We're going to fellowship and ask questions. Some of the hard questions that we've all struggled with. Sound good? So anyway, love and appreciate you guys. Thank you. Really uh, awesome. I'll just set this right here for you. We have so enjoyed being with you all. And um, it's been such fun and spending the day with Mike and Bob and Nathan. Um, You've got the real deal in the in this couple. It, um, it's just so encouraging to be with you guys and to see how well you love. And you 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 imitate your father well. <laughs> and um, one of the most freeing things for me was to discover that God doesn't just love us. But he likes us too. <laughs> that you are a dream of God come true. Let us make man. <laughs> you are birthed out of the desire of God. And you know, you may run away. You may make your bed in hell, as David said. But he will hunt you down. Behold, even there, his arms surround you. He enfolds you with his love.
put me to the grave Only to rise again In you I rose again Crazy love gentle rain on the tender grass let these words distill like the morning dew I open up my heart and let them in like the flowers drink the showers of the spring So um, is this supposed to give a sound or is this just for the recording? Great. <laughs> well, welcome everybody. Good to have you here tonight and uh, we look forward to the conversation. Uh, we love these type of um, meetings, which is 
much more intimate, much more real. And um, I know we've advertised it as uh, Q&A, that might have given the wrong impression. You, you might have thought that you came here with your questions and they're all going to be answered. Um, <laughs> now, there was a time where people told me Jesus is the answer to all your questions. But the longer I've walked with him, the more I've realized that he's not really interested in answering all my questions. He's more interested in questioning all my answers. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, tonight as we explore these questions, there will be questions, um, but I think the really cool thing about that is that there can be questions. There's not some party line that you need to stick to and uh, otherwise you're in trouble. You can have questions. <laughs> in fact, we've got this story in Luke 24 of two disciples walking down confused and not quite knowing what happened. And it's in their conversation that another person joins them and starts revealing himself to them in a way that they've never imagined. So um, I know that Jesus is here. Didn't he say where, where there's two of you? I'm not going to miss out on that party. I'm right there. So Jesus, we welcome you. <laughs> We welcome you, Spirit of Truth, to just help us in this conversation and as we explore the beauty that you have deposited within each, in each one of us. Thank you, Papa. Amen. So let's start. Let's start with some questions. And you can just say your question loud enough for me to hear and then I'll repeat it so that it can be on the, the recording as well. So anyone? Yeah. I have a good friend who's had a really tough season of life for several years. And the question is, is God mad at me? Is that why I keep going through and not having yes. a breakthrough, but just continue to struggle and struggle? Okay. And is there something I've done wrong? And how do I figure it out if there is? And am yes. I leaving something wrong? Wow. <laughs> Profound. I mean, that's, so the question was a friend going through tough times, really tough times for a long time. And, and the question that often stirs is, is God busy punishing me? Have I stepped out of line? Is he trying to correct me? Where do I go from here? And so I want to take this opportunity to maybe... Um, speak about two ways in which we have related our relationship with God. The first one I think all of you will be familiar with. How many of you have heard of the idea that God has a plan for your life? All of us. Hey. And there's some beautiful things that can be said about that. But I want to kind of explore with you another metaphor and also show how we have pushed that metaphor of God as a plan for your life to such an extent that it has become damaging rather than encouraging. Now, um, you can, you know, there's beautiful scriptures, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the thoughts that I have towards you. Some translation says plans, thoughts to prosper you, to give you a future and a hope. So there's room for that. But just imagine you have your newborn in your arms and you decide you're going to be an engineer, little man. And I'm going to make sure that you have the right relationships, you're going to the right school, but that's my plan for your life. <laughs> and um, that kind of relationship with your child, you know that's not going to be conducive to good relationships. As a parent, of course, you have plans for them to be healthy, to be happy. But your plan is not so concrete or restrictive that it becomes manipulative. Because love does not control. Yes. Yeah. You give that freedom. Love doesn't control. 
And we have often pushed the metaphor of God as a plan for my life to such an extent that we thought the only contribution we have to make is to find out what the plan is and stick to it. Um, and I mean, how, how many of you have found that blueprint <laughs> and, and stuck to it? Uh, that kind of metaphor I now want to contrast with the metaphor of story. Now, what's the difference between a story and a plan? The best plans have got few surprises. The best stories have got many surprises. Um, the best plans try to foresee and limit the future, to not be surprised. The best stories unfold organically and there's surprises in them. I mean, how many of you have been to a movie where in the first five minutes you know exactly who's the good guys, the bad guys, how it's going to unfold? How boring. Think, why did they bother making a movie of this boring story? The best stories are those stories that kind of confuse you halfway through. And you think now, who against the good guy? And, who's the, and I thought this, but now it's this. And there's some, there's some surprise. And the really good stories, right at the end, gives new meaning to the beginning. <laughs> and so I like contrasting this metaphor of story with plan. Because, you know, when the only way we relate to God is in the metaphor of plan, then when we hit the difficult spots, when tragedy comes, when evil uh, is tangible in our lives, when suffering becomes real, we only have really one of two options if plan is the only metaphor we know. Number one, I've stepped out of the plan. That's mostly where people go. And God has withdrawn his favor, he's withdrawn his protection, or even worse, he's really ticked off at you and he's going to send some painful events your way. Now, there is another option, and we don't often say it out loud. We kind of think it deep within, and that is, I think I can make better plans than God. I mean, this sucks. Um, this is not the way life is supposed to go. And so when the only metaphor we have to relate with God is planned, there's a lot of confusion in that. But when we enter this metaphor of story, this idea that life is an unfolding adventure, that God is not just the architect standing behind my life with a plan in his hand trying to smack me back into that, that narrow road, but rather God is the infinite possibility that stands in front of me, inviting me to realize possibilities in my life. Uh, uh, possibilities of love, possibilities of greater awareness of His presence, possibilities of beauty and meaning. And no matter what road I've taken, He's still the one who opens up a new possibility and invites me to co-create. We had such a beautiful time last year in... Um, it was Holland, Holland, Michigan, and then we were we were with some precious friends in Holland, Zealand, and one day we we asked to just for them to just take us to a coffee shop. We had admin to do that morning, and so they dropped us off in a, a town near them called Zealand, Michigan, and as we were busy paying for our is it? Okay, okay. It was the other way around. So we're in Holland, Michigan. And so as we're paying for our um, coffee or try to pay, somebody behind us at the Navitol said, no, I got that. And, um, oh, thank you. And I just took the coffee, put it down to come and thank the person properly. But they're gone. And so I just, you know, I've got my laptop open and I kind of just post on Facebook, we were so blessed today, yeah, in Holland, Michigan, somebody just bought our coffee for us, and, 
and we carry on with our, we've got the online school, so we start communicating with our students. And I get this text back, and the person says, are you really in Holland, Michigan? Can, can I come and see you? And he came, and what happened is, that morning, he's had the Desire Found Me book for about a year, haven't read it, and that morning he decided, I'm going to read it. And he got to chapter 3, and he kind of looked at these notifications, and yeah, he see, sees, I'm in his town. <laughs> and he first thought Holland's in Europe, but he said, no, it's Holland, Michigan. So he came and saw us. And he started telling us his story. He was a, a, a pastor many years before in a, in a big church. And because he began including people from walks of life that was normally not included in that community, he ran into big trouble with the leadership. And eventually, this became such a problem for him that he... He turned to alcohol, became an alcoholic, was, you know, got out of the church, and then he went through a program of rehabilitation, but that happened something like eight or nine years ago. And as he sat with us, he said, can you just explain to me again the difference between story and plan? You see, in his understanding, he missed the plan for so long. And so far, that to even get back with the plan seemed impossible. <laughs> but as we started sharing this gloriously good news of the God of possibility, who no, no matter what you've done, no matter what pigsty you're sitting in, <laughs> he's the God who says, I can open up a new possibility. I invite you into a life that has meaning and beauty. And his eyes started tearing up and he said, you've got to excuse me. I've just got to go sit with the Lord with this. And he walked out and we saw him outside embracing people. He came back five minutes later and he just met the pastors of this church where he was at church seven years ago, reconciled, this beautiful thing happened, all in like one morning. <laughs> so I think there's this, this beautiful paradigm to see that there, there's room for plans. Certainly when we started making our plans to come travel Europe, America for about three months, there, there was, we had to make some plans. We had to book tickets in time to get proper <laughs> prices, etc. But we always leave a bit of room for chaos, and that's why we're here tonight. <laughs> <There's>, um, <laughs> we, <laughs> we actually had another appointment in, in Florida, um, but that, that, nothing around that was quite finalized. Our flights into Florida and from Florida to to uh, Seattle wasn't done and then in the middle of our tour that got cancelled and so I let Mike know because he asked us when you have a gap and he immediately came back and said let me book your flights you coming so we were so blessed a bit of chaos just creates that opportunity for being surprised and we so enjoy this surprise thank you any other? Did that kind of address? Yeah, plan versus story is pretty powerful. Yeah. But if God's upset with me, mm -hmm. then how is he going to open another opportunity? Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yes. Yes. So this. So the question is, but. The, the, the story paradigm is powerful, but if God's upset with me, um, how do you deal with that? Or if I perceive God being upset with me, and you must jump in whenever you want. <laughs> so first and foremost, I think uh, the more we start knowing our Abba, 
the more we start realizing there is absolutely nothing nothing that has happened nothing that's happening paul says it this way i can't think of anything to come anything that can happen that can separate me from the love of god i can't whether life or death whether angels whether some supernatural phenomena whatever you can think of i can't for the life of me think of a situation that can separate me from the love of god and so first and foremost i think that is the first thing that we take to people that that we are enemies in our minds says colossians when, whenever the scripture speaks of God reconciling the world to himself, it never inverses that picture in the New Testament. The New Testament never speaks about God reconciling himself to the world. <laughs> because he's never left. He's never stopped embracing you. He's never stopped experiencing everything you experience with you. No matter, this is, I think, what Paul meant when he said he descended and ascended that he may fill all things. Now, in our Western world of interpreting those scriptures, we've often kind of said, well, you know, 2,000 years ago, Jesus went to some place called hell to go get some keys. He, he got it, and now he raised, and he's in another place called heaven, kind of waiting for things to mature, to, to take his next step. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says he descended and ascended so that he may fill all Things. So in a very real sense, God is still in hell. <laughs> what do I mean by that? I mean that there is no place of alienation, of suffering, of, of doubt that a person might find themselves in. That I need to first go to them and pull them out of that hell and say, now you are ready to meet God. But rather, whatever hell a person finds themselves in, I can introduce them to the God who has been in their hell with them. The God who understands them better than what they understand themselves because there is nothing that any person has ever experienced that God has not experienced it with them. He fills all things. The incarnation is the scandalous message that God is not somewhere else observing us, but God has emptied himself into your humanity. <laughs> it's in your flesh, and it's in your life, it's in your existence. That God exists. When you suffer, He suffers. <laughs> when you experience joy, God experiences joy. <laughs> when you discover freedom, God experiences freedom. This is why He is so committed to your joy and to your freedom. Your joy is His joy. Your freedom is his freedom. <sighs> Man, what a beautiful message we have. This God has never had any need to reconcile himself to humanity. He didn't, Jesus didn't come to change the mind of an angry God about us. He came to change our angry minds about the God who has always been for us. A God who would rather suffer our violence <laughs> than retaliate 
with violence against any of us. Glory. Woo. You're welcome to shout a bit as well. <laughs> Thank you for those powerful questions, my friend. That's so good. Add something as well that, you know, I think such a good question to ask because, uh, you know, how in trying to convince somebody that he's not angry, you know, is um, if they have created that image of God. Um, and there's, there's always so much baggage as well, you know. It, it might be from an experience of a father that or whatever, whatever's happened in, in life. And um, I know with my own dad, he, had, he grew up as a, a missionary child and was shipped off to boarding school and um, was left to his own devices on the islands where they were ministering. And so all manner of things, you know, um, convinced him that, that God was really not the type of father he wanted to know. Um, and, and so, you know, he journeyed through his life just being so anti and, and Christianity was just for weak people who needed a crutch was kind of his, his thing. And it was many years later, um, and I think something that, that really just transformed my heart was to realize, you know, 2 Corinthians 5, when I began to understand that um, one had died for all, therefore all had died. And that, you know, I treated my father when I had an encounter with Jesus, I treated my father as, as an outsider, you know, um, until he would now believe what I believe and accept what I believe and then, and then become a son. Um, but when I realized that God had embraced him and he's been a son all along. And, um, and when I asked myself the question, where was God when Jesus was being crucified? Where was he? He was in Christ, suffering our torment, suffering our pain. God was in Christ. The Father was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses against them. And if anything can, can convince somebody that at our worst, when we murder our Savior, when we murder our Creator, and he has every opportunity to now raise from the dead and pay back time, I'm getting retribution for all you scallywags that, that, that put me there. But how does Jesus rise with his arms open wide in forgiveness and embrace at the very moment or opportunity to get retribution? He reconciles and he embraces. And right at the end when... My dad was actually very ill. He was 88, and um, I had come to his bedside, and I just said to him, Dad, why don't you stop fighting? And why don't you just embrace the one who has embraced you your whole life? Dance with the one who's danced with you all along. And I said, I can pray with you if you want. Just blink or squeezed my hand because he couldn't talk at that stage and he squeezed my hand and he blinked and I just said Papa receive your son son receive your Papa and it, I got to the car and we weren't even home and they called and said he's he's gone and um, so there's nothing that will convince us more that God is not the angry one then understanding he doesn't watch our suffering and pain, but he actually has borne it with us. Yeah. Yeah. I love that scripture that says it's the goodness of God that leads us to change our mind. We've kind of had it a little bit differently in the way we've been taught. We've been taught it's your repentance that leads God to goodness. He's waiting for you to repent just right before he's going to be good to you again. But the scripture says it's his goodness <laughs> that leads us to change our minds. <laughs> he's good all the time. 
Yeah. Last night when you said God thought of us and we were created. Mm. So thinking, changing your thought, yeah. when you're in the depths of discouragement and doubt, mm -hmm. just change your thought. Mm -hmm. That's simple. Absolutely. Yeah. There, there is. Um, so the thought is in the midst of, uh, sorry, just have a day here as well, in the midst of despair, difficult places, just as God creates with, with his thought, our thoughts do have incredible creative power. Um, you know, sometimes even that is perceived as I need to just with my good thinking change things. and. And I don't want to make my, my good thoughts the, the focus of my faith, but rather when in the midst of the most terrible situation, I continue to just know that I'm loved, that I'm the focus of his favor, that begins to transform my thinking so naturally and spontaneously. And, and yes, the way, our thoughts are absolutely involved in creating our reality. Mm. Uh, that is part of our, uh, creating our experience, is the way we are conscious. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just a version of that. Well, first of all, I want to say, uh, I am so, I'm so very thankful for our pastor. Um, because I've kind of grown up with him. We both went through the same thing, same teachings, and it's been hard till we actually found out about grace. Um, you know, I, I found out how much God really, I've really fallen in love with God and how much he loves me. I mean, I know God is love. My only, my only problem is I have a hard time. I know Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And here, here we go. I don't understand the Old Testament. I don't understand God in the Old Testament. Would you please help me? <laughs> what a good question. And thankfully, that was there. So, I'm going to give you the conclusion <laughs> of um, 20 years of study in maybe <laughs> five minutes. So... Very often, that's just going to stir up more questions. So although I'm going to answer you, I know I'm going to open up a whole tanker full of questions. <laughs> because that has to do very much with our approach to Scripture and how we read Scripture and how we interpret it. And so this you will also find in the Desire Found Me book. I grew up with the idea that somehow scripture is this divine inerrant revelation that fell from heaven to earth. It was dictated to people to write. And there's the Chicago statement of inerrancy that says every statement, whether it's concerning science or anything else, it is absolutely true. That's why it's the word of God. So I, I grew up with I think what many of you have grown up with, and that is this idea of the inerrancy of the scripture. And what that meant for me is this, the scriptures became a monologue. It, it was simply God speaking to me. My, my engagement with the scripture was, you shut up and listen, God speaking. Okay. <laughs> and... Um, Yes. <laughs> and I can't go through everything that changed my thinking about it, but I want to just give you the fruit or the end results. What the scripture has become for me is a dialogue, a conversation in which I am invited to participate. It's not just a conversation with me. It was a conversation between many people throughout the Old Testament as well. Um, so let me give a very simple example. Job 
42 verse 7, God speaks to Eliapas, one of Job's friends, and he says, what you said about me is wrong, it's lies. But how many Christians will quote any of the verses in Job from chapter 1 to 42 and say, but that's the word of God? Not realizing that God himself said later on, what you said about me and was written in the Bible are lies. Hello. <laughs> and so I, I undoubtedly revere, I love the scriptures. It, I spent much time in them. But they've become so much richer when I realized that it's not every statement that I have to take as this is God's truth, but rather to see the development of the story and what the whole story wants to communicate. Does that make sense? So I can look at Job and say, this is the inspired word of God. And remember, what is inspired? Inspired doesn't mean somebody grabs you and forces you to write exactly what they want you. Inspired means you've encountered something that has stirred you. And you try to give expression to it, but it's still your expression. It's your words. <laughs> that's, that's trying to get definition to an experience that was inspirational. And so, yes, many people have had experiences of God that inspired them, and they wrote. And they often disagreed. <laughs> so, specifically concerning the Old Testament God, or picture of God, what I do in the Desire Found Me book is I follow the development of a story. God allows his children to tell the story. <laughs> and the oldest stories we have in the Old Testament, the oldest written text, are the text that perceives God most violently. So the... I wonder how far I need to go back. Maybe I'll just stick to this now. So there's texts in the scripture that says God gets so mad that he, he's blind in his madness, that he doesn't care whether you're innocent or guilty, righteous or unrighteous, he's going to kill you all. There's texts like that. <laughs> but then as people develop in their theology and in their encounter and conversation with God, violence becomes more measured. God still gets mad, but now he's only going to kill the unrighteous, not the righteous. Um, then the theology develops further, and God gets further removed from the violence, so that God no longer gets involved in the violence himself, but he hands one nation over to another, let them do the dirty work and sort one another out. And so there's this development that's chronological within scriptures. The very early text, it's almost like when we are, when people are blind in their madness and in what they do. And remember, these are tribes who are wiping one another out. And and when that happens, when afterwards families suddenly look at the bodies around them, at the horror of their own violence, they can't believe we did this. So it must be God who did it, who, who told us or, or authorized us to do it. But as they continue in conversation with God, a realization becomes begins to dawn that we have projected our own anger and our own violence on God. Now there's scriptures in the Old Testament that says, uh, God told me to cook my child and eat him. Okay? That's in the Bible. And then not just once, there's many such scriptures. <laughs> if you had to open your newspaper tomorrow morning, and it said, uh, a man in Colorado Springs 
caught eating his children, um, claiming that Jehovah has given him a divine revelation. Are you going to believe that? <laughs> Case. He was in a mental institution, mm. and so they interviewing him and, and saying, "Well, why is it you did this?" And some, and he says, "Well, God told me to." Man down the hall yells out, "No, I didn't." Yes. <laughs> 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 and so, <laughs> so there's this progression in the story, and the oldest ones are most violent, and God gets less violent and less violent until we get to the New Testament where we meet Jesus who would rather suffer our violence than, uh, than justify our violence. So there's one of two ways of interpreting this. You know, either God really did have a problem with anger a long time ago, um, but somehow he's gone through whatever counseling he needed to and he has he has got better and better and better repented until in Jesus he has finally given up on that bad side of himself and now he's good yes Jesus very often that's what we think Jesus is the kind part of God or maybe just maybe people have realized that we have projected our own perversions, our own anger onto God. We've put our own words in his mouth, but this is an ongoing conversation. You know, there's scriptures in the Old Testament that totally justifies child sacrifice. And even while the Levites are writing up the exact specifications for sacrifices, some prophets are writing Whoever gave you the idea of that I need sacrifices and offerings? In fact, that wasn't my idea. But there's other guys that write, this is God's exact requirement. And so the Old Testament is this text in travail. It's these people arguing, who is God? How do we understand God? Who are we? And, and both Ezekiel and Jeremiah eventually says, it's not God who, God doesn't want your child sacrifices, stop it. And why do they have to tell people to stop sacrificing their children? Because people were actually doing it. Okay? <laughs> and, and why were they doing it? Because if you study their history, there was a time in which they thought the scriptures justified it. You will give me the firstborn. And it didn't mean a spiritual dedication. I mean, you will give me the firstborn of your sons, the firstborn of your donkeys. Uh, you didn't spiritually give your donkey to the Lord. It tells you how you give it to the, the Lord. You break its neck and you sacrifice it. And then it c continues further and it says, but, you know, in the agricultural community your firstborn son was very valuable and and so there was uh, there was some exclusions but if you can't afford it you can give me the firstborn you can do a, a animal sacrifice instead but but people didn't do it because they thought it's a great honor to give your firstborn child so jeremiah and ezekiel had to become very pointed in saying stop sacrificing your children so there's a progression in the story of how people understood God throughout the Old Testament, Jesus comes as this open display where, where <laughs> he says, no one knows the Father. You've missed it. Despite your thousands of years of Bible study, no one knows the Father. But here I am to make him known. And Jesus displays to us a God who in the very act of us killing him transforms our act of murder into our salvation. He doesn't wait for us to be kind of good, kind of repentant, but it's when we at our worst that he gives his best. And so there's a progression, to answer your question, there's a progression of understanding who God is. And it's not just that the Old Testament is wrong. There's beautiful, beautiful passages 
where people realize God's mercy is new every morning, where the prophets realize who God is, and, and the stories are subversive. They are changing the religious mindsets of their time. They're in conversation with God. But it progresses to the place where Jesus brings it to an ultimate conclusion that is so clear and that is so final, that even when you are at your worst, I am not in some transaction with you where I just react to how bad or good you are. I give myself to you unreservedly, even when you are at your worst. <laughs> Glory. Uh, yeah. Don't you think it would have been a lot easier if we hadn't had the, the tree of good and evil, or if we hadn't had evil in the garden at all? Yes. I mean, Adam and Eve were just made. They were pretty naive, yes. you know, so they were sucked in pretty easily. You know, I mean, Adam didn't even know he was like yes. God, you know. So. That's a good question. Why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Would things not have been a bit simpler? I mean, that's like having a party for, for teenagers and putting a box of chocolates in the middle and say, I'm going out for an hour or two. Uh, I'll, please don't look in what, what's in that box or have any. Um, you come back later and chocolates are gone and no one knows where it went. Um, so there's a lot of, lot of questions around Genesis. I mean, why put the tree right in the middle of the garden? Put it somewhere high on the mountain where no one can get to. Make the fruit ugly. <laughs> Not so desirable. So, I actually just... <laughs> uh, about a month ago, I released a series. It's called the Inverted Series on YouTube where I specifically look at those Genesis accounts and different ways of reading the text um, to bring an understanding that I, I think you will find so exciting. I don't know if I can go into the whole thing. Let me, um, let me just give you a taster. I hope I can just do it taste. <laughs> it's a question. I need to kind of just give some taste. Um, so when these stories began to be told, uh, they, it was oral traditions. These stories didn't begin as written text. Uh, they began long before they were written as oral traditions within actually two different kingdoms, the, uh, the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. And when you study the depth of who actually wrote the Bible and where these stories came from, and there's a book I can recommend, it's called Who Wrote the Bible? Richard Friedman is the author. <laughs> Great title on the beginning. And... Um, he shows that in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, every story is repeated twice. And the one story knows God as Elohim until he reveals himself as Yahweh to Moses. The other story knows God as Yahweh from the very beginning of their stories. But you've got two Genesis creation stories. You've got two stories of Abraham being called. You've got two stories of the flood. All these stories are repeated twice. And it's because they came from these two different kingdoms. Now, the Elohim source, which is a little bit later, um, they, they were absolutely committed to take any mythological thinking out of their text. They had no talking animals, no magic trees. There's nothing in the Elohim source that, will, that would in any way support the religious superstitions that was around in their, their pagan neighbors. So none of that. But the, but the Judah text, the, the Yahweh text, they were still much more creative in the way they told stories. 
whatever needs to talk will talk to get the point across. Uh, what, whatever image we need to give you, we'll give you that image to get the point across. And so when we start looking at who wrote these texts, when it was written, what was the purpose, what were they trying to communicate, um, it's actually so fascinating that the, the whole of the Old Testament has got no developed theology of the fall, for instance. They didn't read those texts as the history of our fall. <laughs> so when Jeremiah speaks to a city and he says, you guys should stop your injustice, your sinning, he doesn't stop halfway and say, oh, sorry, I forgot, you can't help yourself. Adam and Eve messed it up and, you know, you, you just rotten to the core and this is what you're going to do. No, none of them has a developed theology of you fallen creatures. They just say, this is wrong, stop it. So... Yeah, so the, the, the Old Testament, outside of Genesis, really doesn't mention Adam and Eve. Firstly, because most of them didn't know about Adam and Eve. That's a story that was developed much later. So we read, and we start in Genesis, and we think this book was written the way we write books, you know. <laughs> they started with chapter one. No, no actually, Genesis was much later. <laughs> Um, where the stories begin is things like the Song of Moses, the Songs of Deliverance, of a nation that is delivered out of slavery. Out of That's where they begin to write songs and poetry celebrating a God who's concerned with the downcast and a God who doesn't just inv uh, validate the, the status quo and the powers that are but the God who hears the cry of the weak and that's where these stories begin to develop and it's only when they in the exile in Babylon that's about 586 years before Christ until 530 that there's a real motivation to bring the stories together to preserve their culture because most nations just lose their culture in exile so that's when the stories are being collated, being edited, um, missing parts are filled in, new stories are invented to make it all um, tied together. And so I would really encourage you to go look at that nine-part series. It's called the Inverted Series, and we've got pamphlets there that will take you to the YouTube channel. That's a huge and beautiful question. And all I can say is that the author, when, when he speaks about this tree, is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't think he could have said it any more powerfully without losing the poetic punch if he had to say, guys, this is not a real tree. What I'm talking about is if you partake of a certain kind of knowledge that confuses good and evil, that is where things are going to get wrong, <laughs> go wrong for you. But to understand the symbolism in those stories, I would encourage you to go and, go and look at those videos. I hope that helped. In, inverted series on the YouTube channel, Always Love. Yes, and there's a pamphlet with the link over there. Thank you. We, we, did you want to say? Yeah. yeah. Some people need to, to leave. And, and for the feed, but I think is, uh, if you guys are open to it, we can break. Mm -hmm. And then so that some of you guys got that have to leave. But uh, if you're open to a few more questions afterwards, that would be awesome. Cool. You yeah. open to that? Yeah. No, yeah. Does that sound good, guys? We can, we can also... Marianne's got such a beautiful song that okay, includes yeah, what we said. Shall we get that beautiful song? No, do that right now. Sure. Does that sound like a good plan? Yep. Uh, yeah. 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 Yeah.
Isn't so beautiful to realize that God has been so patient with us, that he's even spoken our language, sometimes our language of sacrifice, and I won't be able to sing with it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, that he even speaks our language, even of sacrifice, to bring us to a, an understanding that he's better than we've ever imagined, that he's not the angry one. And I often think of a child, yeah, I love the pictures, and seeing, you know, when our children were little, and sometimes, I don't know if you know, your kids have done things, and then they, they kind of knock their head on the wall how many times doing the same thing, and you try and tell them, this isn't going to work for you, but eventually you get down on your knees, and you take that face, and you say, sweetheart, just look into my eyes now. There's a better way. Let me show you. Let me gradually lead you. And I just see God being so patient with us, going, come on, sweetheart. Sacrifice and offering is not what I've ever desired. But you wanted to speak that language, so let's take you from A to B, from B to C. You know, and how beautiful it is. And so I wrote this song just, and it, I felt like this was God speaking to me and saying, what did it take to change your, what did it take me, God, to change your mind? What did it take to change your mind? Show you that I always have been kind. And what did it take to heal your heart? Show you that you always have been part of me, a part of me. And would it turn you around if at your worst I abound? Suffer at the hands of angry men, bearing the hatred you began. If I became you, and showed you the truth And what did it take to make you see The truth about you and the truth about me What did it take to show you there's no substance to The fear you hide behind you hide behind For I faced your death With my last breath Suffered at the hands of angry men To show you what you're worth When I became you And showed you the truth so being you with me 
miss so 